this is what the best of the best do. Uh, they're very good at pitching and they pitch ideas and they want you to be excited about the thing they're excited about. Um, they publish books and they publish content. Um, they build signature products. They raise their profile and they do joint ventures and partnerships. So I called that the five P's, pitch, publish, product, profile and partnership. Uh, and those have been the five cornerstones that I've shared with a lot of people over the years. And we've seen thousands of entrepreneurs publish books and uh, get on stages and you know have a global following of, of fans uh, as a result of just focusing on those five things. podcast. I am here today with Daniel Priestley. Now, Daniel is the founder of Dent Global and Score App, but he has had six business books out there in the world. He's won Entrepreneur of the Year. He's well known for his public speaking, helping entrepreneurs scale up. Daniel, is there anything that you don't actually do? <laughs> well, I get in trouble all the time at the school gate for not following football. Um, so that's something I definitely don't do. <laughs> Well, we're going to get into this as well about being, you know, a working dad with, you know, little ones as well as running the business and what have you. So we're going to talk about your story shortly, Daniel. But before we do that, I just really interested in your views on how do you become a key person of influence? <laughs> well, this is something I noticed back in 2009. Um, all the, if you remember back then, the the social media networks had really kind of um, started going through a real uptick. Uh, people were getting on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, and people were realizing that this was a key strategy. Um, I personally, in the lead up to that, I'd been working with celebrities and best-selling authors and you know those kind of people. And I knew how much they put a value on their personal brand. And I knew that like this was a dominant, amazing strategy for them to attract business and opportunity. And I also knew the strategy that they were using to build their personal brands. And I sort of thought, you know what? Everyone's going to end up doing this. Uh, and those who don't are going to be really left behind. So I wrote the book in 2010, He Person of Influence. And I just basically unpacked, this is what the best of the best do. Uh, they're very good at pitching and they pitch ideas and they want you to be excited about the thing they're excited about. Um, they publish books and they publish content. Um, they build signature products. They raise their profile and they do joint ventures and partnerships. So I called that the five P's, pitch, publish, product, profile, and partnership. Uh, and those have been the five cornerstones that I've shared with a lot of people over the years. And we've seen thousands of entrepreneurs publish books and uh, get on stages and you know have a global following of, of fans uh, as a result of just focusing on those five things. Wow. No, that's great. Hey, listen, we're going to get into this, Daniel. And, you know, I'm interested, actually, because when you talk about personal brand, how much do you encourage the people you work with? And you said you've worked with some incredibly high profile, you know, personalities in the world of business, sport, you know, media, mm. etc. But <clears throat> how do you how do you encourage them to really be congruent with their values? And yes, want to come across to the world in a certain way, but be be real, be authentic, you know, be clear about your purpose and what you stand for, because there's a lot of BS out there, isn't there, in the world of social media, etc. So I'm just really interested in that, how you keep it real and still be a key person of influence. It's actually a fine balance. And um, I'm not necessarily on the side of the fence of saying that you should be authentic, um, because authenticity means different things to different people. Um 
So for example, there was a celebrity chef that I worked with who had millions and millions of followers. And um, he really wanted to get out there and talk about some big conspiracy theories that he really believed strongly in. And, um, and I said, look, if you do this, you're going to absolutely crash your brand and have to start from scratch. People want to hear from you, health and wellness. And I said, yeah, health, wellness, food, all of that sort of stuff. I said, if you bring some of this stuff in, but if you use it as a spice, not an ingredient, uh, you might do well. Um, but ultimately, if you start bringing it in at the level you authentically want to bring it in, you, this is not going to end well for you. And sure enough, he he didn't heed my advice. He went for the authenticity approach and um, and absolutely crashed his brand. And um, so I'm not necessarily, you know, authenticity is a really strange concept because as a leader of an organization, there are plenty of times where you authentically want to fire everyone and start again. Uh, that's what authenticity says, <laughs> you know, or there are plenty of times where you authentically just don't want to do it that day. Um, or there are plenty of times where you don't want to listen to, you know, the 13th person complain about this, this, and this, and and you kind of just authentically want to say, here's an idea, shut up and work. Um, but if you if you go with authenticity, um, you're not going to pitch into existence the thing that you have to do. So there's a balance and there's a dance that you have to do, which is <clears throat> really considering how you're going to be received um, and thinking about what does your audience authentically need to hear in order for them to get on board with what you want them to get on board with. What's the bigger picture? What is it that you really, what's the bigger goal here? Um, and sometimes as a leader, you've got to park short-term authenticity for long-term authenticity. And it's very hard for many people to know the difference between the two. Um, so it's not something I talk a lot about. I actually uh, say, unfortunately, if you want to be a leader, sometimes you're just going to have to park your feelings and and um, and suck it up and do what's best uh, for this particular moment. And, you know, <laughs> so I don't know how that lands, but um but that tends to be my advice uh, to most people in, I, I've worked with a lot of celebrities. I've worked with people who've got 15, 20 million followers on, on um, you know, social media. And we've got to be really careful that when they want to zig, we've got to steer that car around the corner carefully. We can't just yank the wheel when they're traveling at, at the speed of having millions of followers. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And who are some of the, the the big sort of celebs that you've really enjoyed working with, Daniel? I'm sure there's lots of them, but you know, when you yeah. think about the clients, who are the big <clears throat> ones that you've enjoyed most? So with, with? with my big ones, I don't name names, but I've worked with some of the biggest celebrity chefs. I've worked with um people who have massive YouTube channels um where they you know they're involved in either sport where they're talking about a particular sport or technology. Um, so, uh, meditation, mindfulness, um, uh, business, entrepreneurship, uh, that sort of stuff. So I've worked with a number of these people who um, who have like millions and millions and millions of followers and also, also people who are celebrities. I often get referred um, uh, to me, people who, you know, and when you work with a celebrity, you have to sign an NDA because um, they want to be able to open up and talk about what it is that they um you know what they want to talk about. They always come to you with a particular problem, um, but I can tell you some of the problems. Uh, some of the key, some of the key problems is is turning celebrity and fame into a business and making sure that it actually is sustainable beyond just their time for money. Um, and actually, how do they pivot into having products and services that uh, is a product and service ecosystem that sits around them? Um, 
a lot of them are very, very worried about things like what if I get hit by a bus or what if I get ill? Um, you know, how do how does all of this work without me? It's an incredible pressure. It sounds like a pretty cool idea to earn, you know, five to 10 million a year through your time um, with almost no overheads. But it's also an incredible pressure because everything and everyone, it's all sitting on your shoulders. And the feeling that a lot of these people have is that if something happens to them, they let everybody down. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's an enormous amount of pressure, um, that they put themselves under. Yeah, no, actually it's interesting because when often when I advise businesses, whether it's large corporate brands, you know, or whether it's sort of smaller SME businesses, often the founders looking for an exit, I'll always look at the team and I'll be saying, have you got any single points of failure? And what you've just described there is almost the ultimate single point of failure, haven't you? Where you've got, you know, everything is on that, on that one person. So yeah, I can imagine that the, uh, the pressure is immense. And just in terms of mindset then, Daniel, you know, when you're working with people that have that amount of pressure and they've reached the you know almost the the top of their game potentially in some some scenarios do they still have the doubts insecurities imposter syndrome that most of us mere mortals have do you think because i think everyone has it regardless of who you are yeah the the thing with high leverage is um is that little mistakes can cost a lot of money and getting it right getting it a 10 out of 10 can hit big uh for for someone who's got a big brand um, and a nine out of ten can leave a lot of can leave a lot on the table. Um, so there's definitely a commitment to excellence and and getting stuff right. Um, it it varies. So most of the people I've worked with, at the very core thing that they're very good at, they're very confident, um, and they they really it's their their domain of excellence and all of that sort of stuff. But what you'd be surprised by is that just slightly outside of that sphere of excellence, it drops off a cliff. So I've worked with people who are earning millions and millions and millions from what they do, but they don't know the answer to very, very basic business questions. Um, and like even just talking about the basics of productization and product partnerships and how to turn their brand into something that pivots into equity value. It's like, I'm, you know, I, I have to really start at the basics and talk through, you know, just in some cases, how does equity work? How does it, uh, what does it mean to own shares in other companies and um, how, what would a product partnership look like? So there are certain things where you, you would expect um, the, yeah, you'd expect the knowledge to be there, but it's not, but in their domain of excellence, they know absolutely everything and they're, they're brilliant at what they do. Um, as far as things like imposter syndrome, I don't know. It's a funny one because <clears throat> Depends on how fast and how hard they've worked to get there and how fast it's 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 come. I think imposter syndrome is one of these things where suddenly you've got new power and you're not quite sure how to wield it. You know, you've been promoted. The origins of imposter syndrome were that you've been pro- promoted very quickly into a senior role and now you feel that you're not worthy of the role that other people could have been better a better choice um, and there's a lot of responsibilities that suddenly are on your plate and you're sitting there going, my goodness, I don't know if I'm the right person to make decisions that affect people's lives and mortgages and families. Um, so there's that. Strangely, imposter syndrome has come to feel or, or come to mean uh, a much water, more watered down version of that, which is I'm just not feeling confident or I don't like the way I look on camera or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I think um, we should get back to the origin of what is it? It means that you have been put into a position of 
massive responsibility and you're struggling under the weight of that. To me, that's a, you know, that we should stick with that uh, as, a, as a particular thing and teach the other, talk about the other thing of just confidence and self-esteem being, being di- different uh, wheelhouses. Mm, yeah, I think that's a great perspective, actually, Daniel. So when you think about your career, and we're gonna we've been talking about some of the people you help. We're gonna talk about you, so you don't get off the hook, mate. Uh, I, I say. <laughs> um, but do you, have you ever suffered from those feelings yourself through your career? Because you've had huge success, but I'm sure you've had highs and lows where you've been catapulted into amazing positions quite fast, um, and other times where maybe it has developed kind of more organically and slowly. But have you ever had those feelings yourself, Daniel? I had a very fast growth business um, when I was before I was 25, um, and uh, I I started a business at 21. Before the age of 25, it was doing a million a month in in revenue in sales, and um, you know I had a team, quite a sizable team, and all of that sort of stuff. It actually happened too fast, and there were too many things to think about for me to go and introspect at all. Like I just didn't. I, no, there was no thinking about what how I feel about it. I just had the tiger by the tail. So I was just holding on for dear life. Um, and I kind of wish I had have had something like imposter syndrome because I probably would have uh, sought out some mentors. And if I had have had more of a crushing self-belief about whether I could do this or not, I would have probably made a few smarter moves. Um you know, there was a there was a massive deal that was put on the table for me when I was 24, 25. And I ended up walking away from it and walking away from a a lot of money. Um, and you know, had I had imposter syndrome, I might have had the good foresight to actually talk to someone more experienced about it. So I think imposter syndrome has a lot of benefits. You know, it it probably takes people who've got who've got imposter syndrome. You know, it gives them the impetus to go and seek out a mentor, seek out a coach, seek out an objective third party to talk through. You know, the the situation that they're in. And I wish I had have done that. Yeah. What was the business at the time then, Daniel? Because I know you've had so many businesses. Yeah. So I had this business in the early days called Triumphant Events, and what we did is we specialized in bolting on a um, a front end lead generation strategy, which was an event strategy. So we were really good at working with uh, financial planning and franchising. uh, And rather than them selling their core product or service, we would do introduction events. And introduction events, basically an hour to two hours, people turn up, we would promote it, uh, book, do all the bookings, and then coordinate the sales meetings into their existing sales strategy, or even take over the sales process. So I was doing this with about three or four clients per year, and we took a an equity stake in um, in, in everything we were selling. We took a commission on everything we were selling. The big deal that I, I had was that one of my clients wanted to buy me. They wanted they were about to float on the stock market, and they wanted to secure their um, their sales channel. And we were their sales channel, so they wanted to throw a lot of money at us to buy that uh, buy the business to to basically have a secured sales channel because it was identified as a weakness on their um, documents when they were floating that they, they'd outsourced their sales channels. Um, so they wanted to, to bring them in in-house. Um, but basically my first 10 years of career was very much focused on how do you do introduction events? How do you do lead generation? Uh, and it's a real science and an art, but it's such a powerful thing because lead generation can totally transform a business. You can have, let's say you get two business coaches and they're both exactly the same. They're both amazing at what they do. 
if you've got one of them that can stand in front of a hundred people every single week and give an introduction presentation, one of them that does one-on-one, uh, one-on-one uh, stuff, the the person who's in front of uh, an audience of a hundred people a week is going to massively take off uh, relative to their peer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I do want to get to you in a minute, but I'm fascinated by the conversation as well, because when we talk about selling, often people just really cringe. They go, oh, my God, I hate the pitch. I hate the selling. I hate asking for money or, you know, this mind block around selling, whereas you and I know selling is serving, right? And actually, in reality, we're all selling something. <laughs> it yeah. might be your friendship, it might be yeah. your time, it might be whatever, you know, you're presenting yourself to the world in some capacity, whether you are selling yeah. a service directly or not, but we're all out there. So what what are some of the things that you help people with around selling and just kind of reframing it so that they can be really good salespeople, even if they start yeah. from a place of just dreading it? Well, the thing I always start with is that sales is a profession and should be treated like a profession. Um, there is a word that every single person says when they have a positive experience with a salesperson, and that is professional. So, for example, if you go and buy something from a sales professional and you have a professional experience, it has all the hallmarks of they listened to me, they understood me, um, they identified what I was trying to solve. They made thoughtful ins. They gave me thoughtful insights. They shared with me exactly their thinking as to why they made the recommendations that they did. Um, they took their time, uh, and I felt really looked after. So when we've had that experience, we describe that as professionalism, and we we love it. Um, and you know the typical things that people say that they don't like is being pushed, being rushed, being you know forced a solution that's not right. That's unprofessional. It's not a professional approach. So the first thing is just purely and simply, sales as a profession should be treated like a profession. Here's the other interesting insight. The if sales, if sales was a weird thing or an icky thing or a horrible thing, you would see that it would reduce as the the quality of the brand goes up. So if you have an amazing quality brand, you would expect to see no salespeople. And the opposite is true. So for example, Rolex has the Rolex bootcamp, three days worth of um, training that has to be done every 90 days. They have Rolex training every single week. Um, you have to go through an enormous amount of training to do Rolex sales. Um, all the major luxury car brands, they do extensive sales training. Um, and and the, the bigger the brand, the bigger the sales training. So Bentley and Rolls-Royce, they... They're not just saying, oh, well, we don't need to worry about sales training because we're a luxury brand. They're saying because we're a luxury brand, we need to worry extra about sales training. Um, here's a freaky thing that most people have no idea. Um, Apple retail staff who work in the retail stores do 40 minutes of sales training every single day. Uh, and it works much like Peloton. They have a studio. Uh, there's a sales trainer in a studio who records a video for the day. And every single sales, every single retail salesperson watches the video every single day and they're doing daily sales training. Uh, so it's product knowledge, it's objection handling, it's all sorts of things. You know, people are submitting their questions and the sales training team are then redistributing answers. They cover the basics over and over. Um, and, you know, this is Apple, the biggest brand in the world. 
Google have got an army of trained salespeople. So when we think about and Louis Vuitton, luxury brand, they have internal sales trainers, external sales trainers. Um, like they take this thing super seriously. So if it were true that sales was an icky, low rent thing to do, the biggest brands wouldn't do it. And they absolutely do it. And they do it to the best standard possible. Uh, and that's one of the first insights that I love to share with people about sales. Yeah, you know what? I love this because you're totally getting rid of all those misconceptions <laughs> completely in what you know in the space of you know, a little mini masterclass from Daniel Priestley, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. There, but no, it is fantastic. You're absolutely right, and and what a great experience when you when you go into an Apple store. You you absolutely you want to buy, and you don't feel like you're being sold to. You just feel like you're being helped, right? Yeah, so, exactly. It's professional. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So, Daniel, I want to learn more about you. Take me back to young Daniel. What was life like growing up as a kid for you? So, mum was a journalist uh, in the absolute peak of, like, newspaper, um, you know, the, the excitement of newspapers and the highest profitability of newspapers before internet disrupted it. Um, my dad was a school teacher for most of my upbringing, so I spent time, you know, going to and from school with dad. So I had a, a, a great, interesting upbringing with a journalist and a school teacher um, in the house. Um, but there were some things that kind of led me down the entrepreneurial path really, really early. I remember in Boy Scouts, I did a, a car wash uh, thing where, you know, we had to go door to door and ask people if they wanted their cars washed. And I remember making about 60 or $70 and thinking this is incredible. I must have been about 10 or 11 years old. Um, I remember people having to do the roof for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I could do the sides up to about the mirror. So I mustn't have been too tall. Um, and then um, I remember doing a, a garage sale where I sold a whole bunch of damaged stuff um, and, and made it like a few hundred dollars. And I had a, enough money for a Sega master system and a BMX bike. And I kind of just got into this thing of like, wow, there's this thing called business and um, you can sell stuff and you can buy stuff and you can sell it for more money. And, um, and I remember being excited by this. And then around 15, I discovered some books like The E-Myth and um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and um, How to Be a CEO and all these kind of weird books. And I also discovered this thing called The Rich List, the, the Australian list of uh, the richest people in, in Australia. And I, I really just stumbled into this world of business and entrepreneurship and fell head over heels for it. I um, I started listening to Tony Robbins tapes and I cornered my, I worked at McDonald's and there was a franchisee who, um, who owned the McDonald's and I got a, lots of opportunities. Every time he came by the store, I wanted to ask him lots of questions on my break about owning a McDonald's. And I, I wanted to own a McDonald's when I was a kid. Um, so yeah, like, like basically uh, I grew up in Australia, um, but I discovered pretty early that I wanted to do this business thing. Fantastic. So what strikes me as you were talking, Daniel, was you had this curiosity, like to kind of learn and, and you know, just sort of take it all in and try new stuff and, and just kind of keeping curious. And I think that's a great thing in life, right? And in business. Um, are you still curious today, do you think, Daniel? Uh, probably to a fault. So I'm, I'm always very easily drawn towards the new thing uh i'm I, you know it's like oh ai or oh, want to know all about this artificial intelligence thing and how does this work and how do how do we plug this into the business and uh you know so i'm always fascinated by what new technologies are coming out what trends are coming out and i have to be disciplined and say oh wait a second should i 
jump onto this new thing or should I keep doing what works? Um, yeah, the shine, the shiny penny, right? The shiny penny syndrome. I love a yeah. good new shiny penny. Yeah. <laughs> so, given the background of your parents, and you know, father a school teacher, mum a journalist, how important was education and getting like a kind of a formal education in your life? Would you say? Both mum and dad were the first in their families to ever go to university and complete university. Um, so I'm absolutely shocked that they weren't pushing that hard onto me um they really did trust me to kind of make my own way and figure stuff out on my own i did go to university for a year but i dropped out um, i went to business school and when i um you know when i asked around all my lecturers and to see who had actually started a business because that's all that mattered to me have you started a business or not um, none of them had um so i dropped out I was really uh, a belligerent little so-and-so and I just went, well, if none of these people who are trying to teach me have actually done it, I'm, I'm off. Uh, so I went and joined a startup in set, in, instead. Right. No, and yeah, it's a really valid point, actually. You've got to, you know, walk the walk, talk the talk, right? You know, and you've got to be able to demonstrate that you, you know, you're incredible and you know what you're doing. And uh, you're right. I think uh, formal education is great for some people, but it's not for everyone, is it? And uh, yeah, and some professions, you yeah, you've got to have it in some professions, but other things, not so much. And, you know, the other thing too is that today we live in a time, if you're discerning about what content you consume on YouTube or podcasts, my goodness, like some of the lessons that you can get for free online, um, you know, you are able to do a, a lifelong university experience Uh you know, for free. Um, we we do live in this incredible time. I'm seeing a lot of young people at the moment who they're saying, oh, university, that's YouTube. You know, that's where I, I go to YouTube for my university. Um, and I'm not getting yeah. 100 grand. I'm not going to get 100 grand into debt. I'm going to go and learn what I can online. Yeah, exactly. Not university of life, university of YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, it's a big trend right now. It's, um, you know, people are wanting to do an apprenticeship and learn online. Yeah, well, this is a great example, right? We're sitting here having a nice conversation. You're sharing your, sharing your knowledge experience. You know, people will be listening to this. If you're not subscribed, everyone, please do subscribe to Brave Ball Brilliant. Got to get that in there. Um, but no, I, I love that. I love that, Daniel. And did you grow up with brothers, sisters? Were you an only child? What was what was sort of the the, the kind of house, well, I'm, broader family? Yeah, I've got a sister who's seven uh, seven and a half years younger than I am, almost eight years younger than I am. And um, so to a degree, it felt like an only child relationship until we were both in our 20s. So, you know, she was always too young for me to connect with. By the time I was starting primary school, she was just being born. And when I was, you know, when I went to high school, she was just starting primary school. And when I went to university, she was just getting into high school. Um, and then just when she finishes high school, I go off to London. Um, so it was only when we were both in our 20s that we really kind of connected um, I was late 20. She was just turning 20. And, you know, we started like going on a few little trips together and, and actually hanging out together. Um, yeah. And she's also a great entrepreneur as well. She's built a really amazing film production business. Um, she is, you know, like selling to incredible corporate brands. And she's like, she's built that all on her own. And she's got an amazing production team. And, uh, you know, she's, yeah, she's done very, very well for for herself as well so there's a bit of entrepreneurial fire in the blood 
Oh, I can see that. Yeah, how nice. You've almost, you know, your friend, your friends, uh, you happen to be brother and sister, but you've kind of created this friendship, which you found sort of probably, you know, later in life. So that's really, that's really wonderful. So Daniel, before we started uh, recording, we were talking about your, your wavy hair and how important <laughs> how important that is <laughs> we think it's a sign it's of so strange it's just doing its own yeah like and look, there was there was a period where david beckham went through a phase of wearing a hairband a hair clip thing i look like i'm wearing one i'm actually not it's just my hair is doing that and i have no idea how to prevent that um thanks for bringing everyone's attention to it i was trying to kind of you know lean my head back a little bit and make sure no one could see this weird thing that's happening here but yeah my, my absolute pleasure daniel you know i always like keeping it real like you're just a gift that keeps giving this is making it <laughs> making it okay to have kinky hair yeah <laughs> well you know, I, 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 we, we were talking about this before we were recording but anyway let's uh <laughs> let's roll with it it's all good it's all good so listen talk about your little ones you, you're a working dad you're running businesses you're on stage you're helping all these incredible entrepreneurs scale up so you're a busy guy how do you manage to do all of that and still be a great dad <laughs> well uh well, well it's yet to be seen if i was a great dad they may need therapy later in life we'll see but um uh you know i've got three little kids five six and nine um and you know one of the amazing things about the pandemic is it really got people working from home a lot more and i've seen a lot of the kids um and yeah i you know i wrote a book called how to raise entrepreneurial kids which was this idea this philosophy that entrepreneurship is a really great innate uh energy or creativity that people have and there are certain things that the schooling system kind of beats out of uh beats out of us and I wanted to sort of preserve that with the kids. Um, so, for example, um, you know, there's a common wisdom around no means no. And if I said no, then I mean no, and I'll never change my mind. But in the real world, people change their mind all the time. And if, you, um, if you're if you good at sales, if you're good at negotiating, you can negotiate and you can sell and you can turn a no into a yes, right? So and I'm talking about, you know, the basic things of, you know, what they want to eat or what they want to, you know, do. Um, and sometimes I'll, rather than saying no means no, I'll say, look, you've not presented me with a good argument. You've not presented me with a good, um, you know, you've not negotiated that successfully, but if you want to improve your ability to negotiate that, then I'm open to it. So just little, little things like that. Um, if they've got an idea, I want them to present the idea. So if they want to go somewhere, I say, okay, great. I want to know what are the three things that would be three reasons why it would be really good to go to the park and do this thing, right? So I, I try and get them to, and I use language like pitching the idea, um, you know, so see if you can pitch that idea to me so that I get excited about it. Um, and and it's fun and I do it in a fun way and the spirit of intent is fun. But I, I want to, and kids love this stuff. They love to negotiate. They love to haggle. They love to sell stuff. Um, we take the kids out on a cold day and we do, a little shop on the driveway uh, with hot chocolate and they just dance around with every single person who walks past the, get your hot chocolates, get your hot chocolates, one pound for a hot chocolate. And the people come up and buy the hot chocolates and they make like, they made like 15 pounds every 15 minutes. It's incredible to see how fast these kids make money. Um, but anyway, they love it. They love coming inside and they've all made some money and 
they've sold all the hot chocolate ingredients and uh, yeah, lots of, lots of fun stuff like that. So I, I kind of combine a bit of my passion for entrepreneurship with a bit of my passion for being a dad and see if I can get those two things to, <laughs> to work together. Fantastic. We've got three budding entrepreneurs, future millionaires, billionaires on our hands here, Dan. You'll be able to retire and they'll keep you in very, very nice houses and cars by the sounds of it. You know? I hope so. But the pressure, the pressure that's now on them, now that everyone knows that they had an entrepreneurial upbringing, you know, it's like if they don't set up a billion dollar business, everyone will say, well, you, you know, a hundred million. Well, that's you guys are losers, you know. <laughs> they might rebel. They might rebel and do something totally crazy. Become socialists. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Watch this space, people. Watch this space. But you know, as you were talking, um, you you mentioned fun quite a lot. And when I was looking on your website earlier, I love it because you've got three core words, right? So my mm-hmm. three core words are brave, bold, brilliant. And your like three it. core words are brave, good choice, yeah. fun, and dense. Yeah. Right. So talk about talk about the combination of those three and why they're so important to you. Yeah, so um, being brave is getting outside of your comfort zone, which is very something we all have to learn how to do. Having fun is being on a path that's right for you, um, doing it with people that you enjoy working with, um, and you know, being tapped into the bigger picture, not the short-term problem of the day. Um, and then making a dent is um, using business as a force for good, having a positive impact, doing more than just trying to make money, um, so I, I think of be brave, have fun, make a dent is uh, a pretty good little set of values um, that we love to, to, you know, to, to encourage in others. And um, yeah, they do have each one has deeper meanings. When we, we when we also when we train our team, we make sure we do brave, fun, dent experiences. And in their backpack on day one, when they get their new backpack to come and work for the company, they've got things inside the backpack that are brave, fun and dent um so you know we kind of instill those values in the in in all the in all the teammates as well oh fantastic no i love it i love it and three words is something powerful isn't it about about three when you have a trio it really is yeah just has a punch to it doesn't it I agree completely, completely. I've just actually been doing a lot of advisory work with a, with a client, which I can say because um, they're quite happy to say they're working with me, which is a bigger, a huge organization called Accor Hotels. They're the mm. largest hospitality business across all of Europe, Asia, Pacific, six largest Massive. in the world, 5,000 hotels, you name it. 300,000 people work for them. Wow. It's bonkers. I know. So I've been advising their exec board, which has been wonderful, but how I've been using Brave, Bold, Brilliant with them uh, in a business context is brave leading yourself as a as a leader how do you step up and be the best mm. executive you can be bold is leading the business the strategy the five-year plan the growth you know whether it's yep. MA or organic etc and then the brilliant is the high performing team piece yes so you know I use that framework really to help businesses scale up and grow, which is slightly different to how you use your three words. But I think it's incredibly powerful if you can keep it simple, make it real, that people just go, I get it. I get it so easily. It's funny too, even if they don't properly get it, just having something to aspire to lifts the Mm. standard. Like just knowing that there are three words, you know, just the brave, bold, brilliance there. And they may not know exactly what it means the way you would say it, but the fact that it's there is that little bit of extra standard um, that that kind of, you know, it doesn't need to make sense as much as people think. You know, we've had Brave Fund Dent for years and we train people on Brave Fund Dent and they enjoy Brave Fund Dent. 
and half the battle is just the fact that they um sorry a little bit of an echo in mine have you got that as well i'm all good oh let me maybe i'll put my headphones in and we'll see if that works um yeah half the battle is just that they know that there's standards yeah 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 absolutely talk about dense because that's an interesting word how did you come up with dent oh there's a great story to that so um there's this steve jobs quote that an entrepreneur's job is to go and make a dent in the universe and he, he he said this many times through and it was just this idea that if he, he would say to people if you think we're just about making money you've missed the point we're here to make a dent in the universe um and he would say to executives that he was trying to hire do you want to go and sell sugar water to kids or do you want to come here and make a dent in the universe with us and he would like really use this kind of idea of like making your mark showing up doing something that wouldn't have happened without you um a dent is actually a meaningful impact if you dent your car you had a meaningful impact with something so it's it's making meaningful impacts with with life with the world so when steve jobs passed i had my business was called intrivo which stood for it was a contraction of the words entrepreneur revolution and i never liked it because people couldn't say it spell it or remember it so i kind of wasn't happy with it and I remember when Steve Jobs passed, I thought to myself, one day I'd love to have a company called Dent, um, where we we focus on getting people to make a dent in the universe. And uh, I, I shared this with a co-founder who said, "Let's just do it. Let's just rebrand. Um, let's do it now, and we'll have Dent. We'll have Dent now." And it was it was really cool. Oh, we I love it. that. I love that. That's great. And yeah, absolute tribute to the great Steve Jobs, you know, obviously the ultimate entrepreneur, right? And talk talk about making an impact change in the world. That's uh, that's absolutely living and breathing that. So yeah, I love that. What a great story. And, and Daniel, you know, people will look at your life, right? They'll see you having all this success and going, oh, it's all right for Daniel, you know, with his fancy businesses and, you know, with all the good things that happen in his life. But I'm <laughs> sure it hasn't all been plain sailing. For you um because it never is for it well very rarely is for anyone i don't think so can you share some of the some of the more challenging times you've had whilst you've been building buying mm. selling businesses because i think it's important that we do keep it real as well you know well there's just an underlying backdrop or white noise of difficulty um i probably haven't had a weekend i mean I've, obviously i've had weekends but really not proper weekends for 20 years because when I was 21 years old, I started a business and entrepreneurs can never switch off. You never, ever feel like the business is in a safe enough place for you to be able to just completely stop and relax. I was always working on weekends. Um, so all through my 20s and early 30s, I was just, you know, I roll out of bed in the morning and I work and then I have lunch and I work and I go to have dinner and I work after dinner and, um, and I go to bed and then I do it all again. And then on weekends we run events or I'm working or if there's something I can put to, but just the idea of being able to switch off and enjoy a weekend through that whole growth phase just never happened. I never had a weekend. Then I had kids. And once you've got little kids, you never have a weekend. Um, you know, you never switch off because the little kids are little kids and they, they, they need constant attention. So I don't think I've had a weekend for 20 years um, or, or not a, not a long, not a, not a, uh, I've had holidays, but I wouldn't say I've had time where I can just comfortably switch off. I've never, ever trusted that things are going to be okay for just being able to, 
you know, if you work for a large company, there's this kind of thought of like, well, of course they'll be able to pay my bills. Or of course they'll be able to pay my wage. Um, I've always felt that at any time it could all come crashing down because if you look at the 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 backdrop of the economy for me, uh, you know, when I first got started, we had 9-11 and we had the dot-com crash. And then pretty soon after that, um, things were just getting on their feet again and we had the global financial crisis and everything came to a crashing end. And then, you know, <laughs> there's pandemics and there's this, there's that. So I've always had either pretty much every 10 years, it seems like there's going to be a global crash of some sort. And then there's going to be something that happens in your personal life. That's going to be a crash. Um, that's going to, you know, so you're going to have these things happening in the background. Um, but uh, so there's, there's just that general background, background noise of difficulty. Entrepreneurship is hard and leadership's hard because all the easy decisions get made by other people. And only the hard things end up on your desk. So you are always working on a hard problem. And if it was easy, someone else would have solved it. So, um, you know, so that is just that is just leadership and entrepreneurship. It's a shitty job because um, you're solving problems. By by virtue of the, the role being valuable means that you're just constantly solving hard problems. Um, so it's a, it's a crappy job for that reason. Um, and, you know, it takes toll on relationships. So, you know, my first business ended my first serious relationship. Um, I was with a girl for three years, uh, but it was too much pressure. And she, you know, rightfully, she decided to leave because I think I I think I had missed all these major occasions and hadn't done something special. And then Valentine's Day rocked around and I hadn't planned anything and that was it. So there was, you know, there was that sort of stuff and, uh, my my best friend and I had a major falling out. We don't talk anymore, uh, you know, and we, we, we never will. But you know, those kind of things. Business has a way of putting enough pressure on on relationships that that some of them do break. Uh, so um, yeah, it it you know puts pressure on health and stress and family and life and all that sort of stuff. If anyone's thinking about being an entrepreneur, I think I've just done a good job of talking them out of it. <laughs> Well, yeah, you're right. It's never easy, is it? Absolutely. And uh, and you talked about, you know, the more personal relationship side of things as well, because I think that's the thing, isn't it? Everyone sort of looks at the business, but they they forget about what goes on behind and who you've got in your corner. Um, and sometimes, you know, we have the right people in our corner. Sometimes we don't always have the right people in our corner and we need to make some tough decisions on, on those areas. So with your, you know, obviously not wishing to kind of go into anything too personal, but with the, the kind of split from you know your friend and um, was that business related then that, that caused it was, it was part of, yeah it was um so when we were both single uh it was very easy to be aligned and when he got married uh they wanted different things out of life so they started wanting more work-life balance they wanted more of a lifestyle business I wanted to build a global business and I wanted a performance business my expectations of their performance were much higher you know, they wanted to take extended long holidays every year. Um, and, you know, they wanted to use the business as a cash cow that provided for a lifestyle. I wanted to use a sacrifice of lifestyle to provide for the business and grow the business. So these these were very much at odds. And, you know, with a bit of perspective, I can just simply say that's what was going on. They wanted lifestyle and I wanted performance. Um, and it wasn't personal, but it felt very personal at the time. And it felt like we were just nothing could get on the same page. Um, and then the way of trying to separate 
um, and go our separate ways became, you know, aggressive and personal and, and, you know, scrappy um, and, you know, and, and hurtful. So all of that sort of stuff happens. Business is a set of relationships, you know, and the relationships are not easy to, to manage, uh, especially growing fast growth companies. What people, what people don't know is that fast growth companies are incredibly stressful and stress makes people do silly things. Sometimes they drink, sometimes they have sex with people that they shouldn't have had sex with. Um, and, you know, in any fast growth company, there are people hooking up um and you know little mini psychodramas and relationship dramas unfolding all the time uh so these are these are the things that happen behind the scene that that's the reality and being a leader of a business like that it's actually really awkward because sometimes you hear about something and it's like god they don't teach that in business school how do you talk to people about an inappropriate relationship yeah, yeah. I was going to say I've had a few of them over the years, but I think that misinterpreted. Not me personally, but yeah, same. My not, teams. not me. Yeah, not me personally as well. But the the, but, the yeah. you know you it lands on your desk, right? <laughs> that's a horrible. Oh. That's a horrible picture. I don't mean that. It, I don't mean that that way. I don't mean that well, it happened on your desk, but it certainly ends up on your desk. Well, it might have done. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. Could have been I'm the boardroom. Could have been, could have been. Those cameras are everywhere, you know, in our <laughs> building. <laughs> well, moving swiftly on then, Daniel, you know, through all these years, what have you learned about yourself? How have you grown and matured as a person, do you think, from, you know, when you started out in your early 20s, you know, to where you are now as a, as a dad with all the experience in between? How have you changed, do you think, and matured? What have you learned about yourself? Yeah, um, I think in the early days, I was just belligerently focused on one thing and I only wanted to be focused on one thing. And I was more than happy for that to be at the detriment of everything else. Um, I didn't mind. Um, I didn't mind 70, 80 hours a week. There was only one thing that mattered and that was work. And, um, you know, there wasn't everything else was just a distraction um from from work and mind you my work was having fun like we were running events all the time and we were going out all the time and we were having dinners at great places all the time on planes traveling all the time I wasn't digging ditches uh you know so there was no scrubbing floors in my my work so I I see a lot of people who are like oh you know work-life balance is essential and you know because work sucks. And it's like, I never had work that sucks. I always had really interesting, amazing work with amazing people. So I loved it and I wanted to do more of it. Um, as a dad, obviously you have to flip that on its head. You've got to really start to manage your life so that health and family and um, and work can coexist. Uh, you know, and those, you know, those things become, you know, very, very different. Um, I think, I think too, I've got a lot of um, a lot more self awareness as an uh, you know as I've um, spent time in business that I'm only good at a very narrow set of things, and I need to surround myself with overlings, not underlings. I need to have people who are better than me at most, like at everything, and that just I have a very narrow set of skills that I'm good at, and in most meetings I should shut up and let other people uh, you know figure it out. Um, 
Yeah. yeah, I think that's it. That's that. That's a sign of strength as, as a leader, though, to recognise that you don't have all the answers, and that you, you know, you just surround yourself with really smart people that are smarter than you in the areas that you're not so good at. But sometimes I think when, especially, I, I look back at my earlier career, and I would say, you know, your ego gets in the way a little bit. You feel like you should be able to deal with any situation or have all the answers, and of course you don't, right? You don't at all. And uh, as you get a bit older and a bit more, um, I don't know, longer in the two, shall we? say I think that that talent to actually realize focus on what you're really good at and then get other people to do the other stuff is smart right smart yeah exactly and things that don't make sense in the short term eventually make sense over the long period of time so like you know if you if you've only driven a car for five minutes why would you need ABS brakes weighing you down and then it's only when you need the ABS brakes that you go, oh, wow, okay, those ABS brakes were pretty good. Like, I'm pretty glad that they were in the car. And, you know, I remember sort of arguing over certain things with people who are a bit older, you know, thinking, oh, well, they're just behind the times and they just, you know, they've just got an old way of doing things. You know, they move too slow. Why would you invest in that? Why would you put take time to do that? Why would you, you know, put that into the business when it's much faster not to do those things? Um, and then you realize, oh, wait a second, because they've seen, you know, that those things are useful every three years. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they become, well, they become very useful when you hit 35, 40 people. Um, and if you put them in from the beginning, then it's much easier, uh, when you, when you scale up. So, um, yeah, I think I was just probably pretty naive for, for the first 10 years, especially. Well, sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? <laughs> Yeah. I'm pro probably thing. I'm probably incredibly naive right now like um there's probably <laughs> there's probably in your audience of of amazing leaders there's probably people listening to what I'm saying going you're an absolute idiot um which is fine <laughs> I'm I'm learning I'm trying trying my best I think every day is a school day till the day you die every, for all every day us. is a school day I love that <laughs> and your dad would like that wouldn't he so he would, he would be. <laughs> Shout out to Dan. Um, so, Daniel, before I um, get to the last few questions, um, public speaking, a lot of people, again, just dread, like, standing on stage, the thought of standing up in front of an audience would just, like, make most people want to throw up <laughs> in your terms yeah. of your normal person. How do you get over that, or how have you helped people get over those fears of public speaking? Um, just as a couple of tips, and then I'm going to ask you your last two, few questions. Two tips, which is which is like riding a motorcycle or something like that. The more you do it, the less fearful you are of it. It's just a familiarity gap. Um, you know, there was this one year that I had to do 174 talks in one year in in 2005 when we were scaling up, um, and you get over public speaking real fast when you just do it a lot. You know, it's just literally, it's like you can just go from whatever you're doing to standing in front of 500 people and there's zero energy. But there was actually one mindset shift that I remember having that was a big mindset shift, which is that I was sitting in an audience and I was listening to a speaker on stage and I realized that me in the audience, I can only experience something not as an audience, I can experience something as an individual who's looking at another individual on a stage. So I, I realized that I was having a relationship or an experience that was one-to-one -one. and I wasn't having a group-to-one. I was just, you know, I, as an audience member, it was me and the person on the stage. And then I realized that when you stand on front of a stage, you as the speaker see a, a sea of faces, you see 500 people or a thousand people in the, in the audience. 
but they're having a one-to-one experience. And when you realize you're not presenting to a group, you're presenting to individuals. They're just individual people. And they automatically think of you as a leader because you're up on the stage. They automatically think of you as someone they wish they could get to know a little bit better. Um, because it's very human when we see someone on a stage that we want to see them, you know, succeed and we want to know more and all that sort of stuff. So when I realized that I really had this head flip of like, there's nothing to be afraid of because even if the audience is 30,000, 300,000, each person can experience you as one person. That's it. (laughs) They can't experience you as a group. It's only me that gets to experience the group. Um, So that for me was the flip. That was that was where I went. I'm not afraid of this anymore because I'm just talking to one person, you know, at a time. I I love that. I love that. What an absolute golden nugget of advice. Fantastic, Daniel. That's going to help lots of people listening or watching. Hope so. Um, yeah, definitely wonderful. So last couple of questions, Daniel. So when you think about all of your kind of life and business experience so far, can you think of the best piece of advice that you've been given? There's a few great pieces of advice. One of them was everything's downstream from lead generation. Um, That was a great piece of advice because my mentor really taught me that even with big businesses, like the ability to generate interest in what you're doing is everything. That if you can't generate interest, it doesn't matter how good the thing is. You can, you can invent the next, you know, you know, solar panel or, you know, nuclear fusion thing that's going to change the world. If people aren't interested in investing in it, buying it, getting excited about it, if you can't get people interested uh, and signaling their interest, then really it's game over from that point. Um, And even when we see like Elon Musk, he's a master at getting people to engage with Cybertruck and put down a $100 deposit and all of those things that he does He's he's a master at getting the engagement, the the um, the signal of interest or the lead. So very simple way of thinking about it is everything's downstream from lead generation, and once you've got that sorted, then then you've got a leadership problem. Then you've got all these other problems that happen. But if you can't fix that one problem, that upstream problem, uh, nothing else really matters. And you can have the greatest systems and processes and leaders and team and all that stuff. If there's not enough people showing interest in there, it you know you're going to lose money. So, um, so I've never forgotten that, um, that one second piece of advice that I got that was great was, um, income follows assets that, um, it's really, it's the underlying assets that do the work and that you need to have the right assets in the business, you know, first your balance sheet, then your P and L. And I didn't, I'd heard leaders say that in the past that you've got to build your balance sheet and then your P and L takes care of itself. I never really understood it until someone really took me through what are the assets of the business and you know the and not just like technical accounting speak but like things like having a document for something is an asset having a predictable way of doing something is an asset um, having a video that's on YouTube that generates you know the result that you want it to generate is an asset having a podcast that gets people listening um, and that just goes out there and meets people for you is a, is an amazing asset. Digital assets are probably the, the best assets that we can possibly have right now. So income follows assets is like, it's not hard work that does it. It's not blood, sweat and tears. It's having the right, ultimately long-term, it's having the right assets around you. Um, so that was a, that was a really good one. Um, and then as an entrepreneur, great advice was a, from a friend of mine who said, you make your money when you sell, you, you, you make, 
you make great money when you exit. Um, and you know, when you sell a company for a lot of money, it is life changing. It's it's a it's a life changing thing that happens, and sudden suddenly you're in a different category, and you have different options, and you can breathe, uh, and all of that sort of stuff. And the truth about owning a business is that it's very rare that you can take a lot of money out of the business. It's mostly the case that everything goes back into growth. You know, there's some money comes out, but the the reality of having a business is that most of it's going back into the growth of the business. If you're winning, you throw everything in. If you're losing, you throw everything in. Uh, you know, so yeah. uh, it tends to be that's the case. So, you know, looking, being on the lookout for the exit, is um or having having an exit plan or having a you know knowing or at least knowing that the majority of money in business is made on the exit is a good is a good thing to know and if there's anything any british person can know it's that if you sell to americans it's going to be the best thing you, you could possibly do selling selling to, selling your business to americans is uh is is where it's at well, three top business tips there. Love it, Daniel. I love it. I love it. Fantastic. And Daniel, I'm going to come to the last two questions, but where can people um, find you? I know you're all over social media and everything, but what's the best best way people can engage with you? Yeah, so um, there, there, yeah, there's videos on YouTube and all that sort of stuff. I love LinkedIn at the moment. I'm really geeking out on LinkedIn. Um, and then my books are on Amazon. Um, so you can check out uh, the books. Uh, on most of on on scoreapp.com and on dent.global, um, there's actually uh, links to download my books for free. So there are different books that are available free of charge. Key person of influence, you'll be able to find a digital copy of. Um, scorecard marketing, you'll be able to find a digital copy of. Um, because I want people to have those books. I want people to download them and and use them and find them useful. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll put all of those links as well in the show notes um, or on the YouTube channel so that you can um, absolutely, you know, get those free assets. I mean, we talked about content, so that's really generous of you, Daniel. Thank you for doing that. Um, and then, you know, as we come to the end of the podcast, if you could describe this year in one word, Daniel, what would it be and why? Uh, it's probably hockey stick. Um, so for three years, three years ago, we launched Score App. And um, we mapped out a plan month by month. Where do we need to be in order to get to 100 million by 2025? And um, and it was basically we 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 did a financial forecast and we did month by month, like literally this is our this is the month that we can put this budget into this and here's what we can spend on that and here's how many trial, free trials we need to sign up and here's how many paying customers we need to get to. And we were tracking along really, really well with that. We were doing super, super well. Um, and we were kind of like, you know, always slightly ahead of target or maybe a little bit behind, but we caught up. And then something happened in the last couple of months where we started hitting our targets by the middle of the month. So this month, for example, we were meant to be at 800, 806 uh, new free trials signing up by the end of the month, by the 31st. And we hit that on the 16th. Um, so it's like, boom, you know, and it's, it's just happening month after month after month, these exciting milestones of being in exponential growth. And, um, and it's that real feeling of having the tiger by the tail and that hockey stick kind of whoosh, uh, of something taking off. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's exciting. It's fun. It's stressful. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, but yeah, it's been, been kind of that, um, whoosh. 
Whoosh, I'm loving it. Hockey stick whoosh. What a great, what a great word and a great <laughs> and great sound. Fabulous. I'm delighted for you, Daniel. That is really great to hear, honestly. So last question. This podcast called Brave, Bold, Brilliant. What does that mean to you, Daniel? Well, I love these words, right? So brave is getting outside your comfort zone. Um, it's about taking that step. You know, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And one of the biggest barriers why people don't do it is just bravery. You've you've just there, and bra bravery is not having no fear. Bravery is having fear and doing it anyway, right? That's important to know. If there was no fear, then it wouldn't be brave. Uh, you know, so bravery is in perfect relationship is hand in hand with fear. You've got to overcome your comfort zone. You've got to step outside that comfort zone in in the direction of something you really want. So that's bravery. Boldness is about being willing to be seen. You know, it's like, um, you know, it's it's that um, st standing up and, and standing out, you know, being bold. Um, and it's that willingness to be putting your name on something, you know, putting, putting your name to something. It's that being the face of something. Um, and then brilliance is, you know, a commitment to excellence. It's going, it's actually seeing it through to the end and, and being it, um, doing it in such a way that people notice and it's excellent, that the work itself is excellent, that what you achieve, what you do. So not just boldness, which is putting your name on something, but brilliance, which is seeing it through to, to excellence and actually getting something achieved. Um, so that's what those three words mean to me. Wonderful. What a way to finish, Daniel. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I can't wait to see what's going to happen next for you. Sky's the limit. <laughs> Cheers. I hope so. We'll see. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.